that's the best thing an author could ever ask for, right? That people see your book and want it and love it and it does well. So then I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's next. Like I'd been working on this project for six years before it was published. I have also obviously been doing freelance work and client work and all kinds of work to keep going. And there were all these big dreams I had when I had quit my job, but I actually achieved them two years after quitting my job. And I was like, oh my God, this seems like an awesome problem to have. But suddenly I just felt nothing. That was Anne Shen. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 155. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. So on this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you any miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plans for anything. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over the quick fix approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep. We go into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from just telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all our guests has been a big dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. 
As a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, which, oh man, if you think that it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait till you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on Patreon, you'll also see that there are currently three different funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Anne Shen. Anne is an illustrator, author, and designer based in Los Angeles. She started her creative career in her mid-20s when she quit her job to go to art school. Since then, she's hit the ground running, creating whimsical, colorful work for clients like Disney, Facebook, and Papyrus, among many, many others. She's also written and illustrated two wonderful books, both published by Chronicle Books, and if you're looking for a fun holiday gift, I can't recommend these books enough. The first one, called Bad Girls Throughout History, showcases 100 revolutionary women who were bad in the best sense of the word. They challenged the status quo and changed the rules for all who followed. Anne's most recent book, Legendary Ladies, is a lushly illustrated celebration of goddesses from around the world, in which her gorgeous artwork and enlightening essays celebrate the feminine divine and encourage readers to empower themselves. In this episode, Anne talks honestly about her career as an artist, sharing the -the behind-the-scenes truth of the major turning points along the way, such as when she quit her job to go to art school, how she transitioned from being an in-house designer to owning her own business and doing freelance work, what it felt like for her first book to be such a huge success after years of being told that the idea wouldn't sell, and so much more. Anne shares other stuff too, like what a typical workday looks like for her, what her self-care routines entail, and why she's now placing such a big emphasis on her own mental health. We talk about that a lot, depression, anxiety, and share both of our experiences with that. We also talk about curiosity, taking risks, and the power of experimentation, and just lots more good, honest stuff. I absolutely loved all the stories that Anne shared in this conversation. I've been such a huge fan of her work for a while now, and I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. And welcome to the show. Hi. I'm so excited that we get to talk today. Thank you so much for having me on, Nicole. Anyone who comes my way via the lovely Tiffany Hahn is someone that I want to be friends with. So I'm extra excited. Likewise. So tell me something that you're totally obsessed with right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I am the kind of person who has obsessions for like two weeks, Get knows everything about it and then completely forgets about it. But right now I'm completely obsessed with the curious creations of Christine McConnell on Netflix. I love that show. I love her. I found it so inspiring to get me working in different ways than how I normally do, which is good because I'm in a place where I want to explore and grow my work. And it's really hard for me to find people or uh, artists who 
inspire me right now because I feel like I'm just in a place where I'm, I've seen a lot and I've just done a lot and it's kind of a, you know, people get stuck in ruts. So it's always like a breath of fresh air when I find someone new to totally spark me. So I'm obsessed with it. I have not seen that yet, but I just wrote it down because I'm always on the lookout for new things to binge. I'm the same way as you where I get completely obsessed with something and go down the rabbit hole. And I'm like, what can I learn about this? I want to do nothing but this, or I want to eat nothing but this. And then (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'm over it. What's next? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. It's so, it's such a good show. It's very like Tim Burton meets Martha Stewart and Bob Ross at the same time. It's very relaxing. And I just always have it on while I'm working now because I just find it very relaxing, but also very inspiring because she makes these incredible spooky baked goods that I would probably never do because I wouldn't spend an afternoon sculpting a bone out of a chocolate pretzel, but, but it's really cool to watch someone else do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it inspires you in other ways. Yeah, so exactly. I just love people who are really passionate and dedicated to their craft to, to this like level of detail. It's just, I love people like that because I'm like that. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's, I mean, uh, one of the questions that I ask a lot at the top of the show is like asking other people about their obsessions. And so much of that comes down to the fact that I'm interested in other people's excitement, right? Like even if the thing that they're obsessed with is something that for whatever reason I don't care about, or I'm not interested in the fact that they're so interested in it is interesting to me. And it's just fun to hear people talk about the thing that completely lights them up. Yes. I love that question. Yeah. It's my favorite. So another question that I love to ask, and I thought might be a fun place to start, what's one thing that you've been wishing lately that people were more open and honest about? Oh, gosh. I think there, and I think this is happening, but I think I wish people were more open about their struggles with uh, mental health and mental health advocacy and just how much mental health is actually a huge part of our well-being as people. And I think there's stigma around it in so many different ways. And when things like really massive tragedies happen and people chalk it up to that person was mentally ill, I think is super destructive to the movement of like mental health normalization, like talking about it, being aware of it, like fitness with it, just like the same way we talk about going to the gym and working out and doing physical challenges for our physical health. I wish people were more open about and addressing that mental health is a real thing that we need to be aware of and to take care of. Yeah. I I mean, I love that you're bringing this up. It's something that comes up on the show all the time. I've talked very openly about my own mood disorder and periods of, you know, intense depression and all of that. And other guests have shared their stories too. And I think the idea of normalizing it it feels so important because like you said, it's easy to only talk about these types of things when they're at the extreme. Like the sort of parallel that I think about a lot for me as someone who's sober with quitting drinking, so Mm -hmm. many of the stories that I heard prior to quitting drinking It was all the really dramatic stuff, right? Like the memoir Mm -hmm. about the person who, you know, woke up in the gutter and didn't remember the previous three days and all of these things. And not that those stories don't deserve to be told, but it sort of Mm -hmm. leaves out all of these folks who are like, well, it's not that bad. So probably I'm fine. And I think mental health is the same thing. It's okay. Well, if I've never been hospitalized for a suicide attempt, again, not that those stories don't deserve to be told also, but it's like, well... I guess it's not that bad. So like what I'm probably fine, right? Like there's people talking about the whole spectrum of their experience when it comes to mental health and mental illness, I feel like is really important. Yes. 
Yeah, because again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, helping people know that they're not alone. So yeah, I totally agree with you and hope that that's something that people continue to be honest about. Yeah. I like that we're shifting the conversation, but I think there's still so much stigma around it. Yeah. And people don't, I think people don't share it because publicly, because like we live in a world where people can be Googled by their employers and it could be considered a liability because of the misunderstanding of that. We all have mental health that we need to, you know, take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately about think that the conversation is shifting around, hey, we don't have to pretend that everything's perfect all the time. I think that there's an agreement of that. But yeah. I also think that it's still pretty carefully crafted when we're sharing struggles. Like, for example, there seems to be yeah, like we're okay with someone talking about, let's say, depression, for example, if it's sort of like wrapped up in a neat bow as something that happened before and now someone yes. is high functioning. But I think we don't really know what to do when someone's actually going through it. I think grief is the same thing, right? That yes, like when absolutely. things are messy, I want there to be space to be able to be honest about it, even if you're in the midst of it. And I, I mean, yeah. I don't know what the answer is, but I think about that a lot, that it's like, is there space to be more honest even when it's not like, oh, okay, well, I have this 10-step story to share of this thing that happened and now I'm totally fine, you know? Yeah, there's totally a focus on survivor stories and triumph stories instead of, which doesn't really help people when they're in the struggle. It doesn't help me when I'm in the struggle of like, yeah, when I am feeling depressed, it's really hard for me to reach out. That's part of the condition too. Mm -hmm. Like you feel like you're alone and isolated and don't want to be a burden. And I find that like, I don't know the answer either, but it's just, it's frustrating. And I can see that as a problem. Like anytime, anytime there's like a celebrity passing and then people just throw up like the national suicide hotline. I'm like, there's so many steps before this one that you can take as a person individually to help your fellow friends and people that you care about. I don't know what exactly the answer is either, but it's just like, yeah, we just kind of either take an extreme step or we just take like, no, we just don't want to be with you in the, in the deep of it, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think so much of what you're speaking to also is this sort of necessity to be able to talk about these things as, like you said, more normal things, even making that connection to physical health, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal to be on social media and to say, oh, I have the stomach flu, right? For example. Yeah, and exactly. Yet, I don't know that that many people are going to say, oh, hey, you know, I'm in kind of a mild depressive episode. And of course, there are people out there that are talking about that. And like you said, everything's Googleable. So maybe it isn't safe for someone to say that for any number of reasons. But yeah, I, yeah. I also wish that that it was just something that was just talked about more of the things that we all do to try to maintain our mental health. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that. Oh, see, that was something I didn't even know that we were going to talk about. And I'm so glad that we did. <laughs> Although I do remember um, when we were uh, talking in the lead up to this conversation and I asked you, you know, what you'd most love to talk about today. One of the things that you mentioned wanting to discuss that caught my attention was you said that you want to talk about all the work that it takes to stay alive and mentally well. And I was like, that's such an honest thing to say. <laughs> so yes, anything else that you want to share about that? I am here for it. <laughs> Well, I really came up on this journey like a year ago. So it's, well, it's probably been longer than a year, but it was a year ago that I finally had to stop and assess like, oh, I've been focusing so hard on doing the work it takes to get the career I wanted for the past 10 years that now that I was finally getting some success and security with my career, I, everything else had fallen apart with my health <laughs> and 
I had, and it wasn't like any one major thing, but it was a million little things that were uncomfortable or, and they all seemed unrelated, which meant like, it didn't feel like it was, and it was just a mystery of what the hell was going on. Like, why was I getting migraines every month? Or why did I suddenly have this kind of flare up or that kind of flare up? It was annoying enough that it finally woke me up. Like it was my body being like, Hey, you got to like pay attention to what's going on. You can't sacrifice all your health. Cause I worked for years full time and freelancing. So I just worked like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I didn't have weekends. And until like four years ago when I quit my job and went full time working for myself. And even then I still had to learn to create boundaries because I love the work I do. Right. And that's the hard part about doing a job that you're very passionate about. You just never want to stop. And I think I think that's a great thing because it's all consuming and you know that's it, that's the thing for you. But at the same time, you need to create healthy boundaries because everything else in your life, you just can't keep going that way. Like there's no way I was going to keep working 24-7, especially as I get older too. <laughs> I'm not as like able to put the energy into things. And then that started to show up in my work too, where I just wasn't as creative. I wasn't able to come up with ideas for my next big projects. And so that's when I took a step back and was like, okay, I'm really starting. And I was also really struggling with like my first book had come out and I had no idea what to expect, but I was kind of prepared. Like a ton of books come out all the time. My agent was very, she's the best, but she, and she's also very like realistic with me where she's like, you know, it could come out and do great, or it could just come out. And then a couple of years later, it'll, you know, be picked up or something. So just let's just keep focused on building out a career. And so I was like, okay, great. I know how to do that. I know how to work my ass off, put out as much content as possible, like meaning for my website, meaning for social media, meaning reaching out to art directors, like that hustle that you do in the first five or so years of your career. I knew how to do that. I knew how to work myself to death. But then maybe about six months later, my book started picking up and doing really, really well, which was incredible because I could have like, that's the best thing an author could ever ask for, right? That people see your book and want it and love it and it does well. So then I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's next. Like I'd been working on this project for six years um, before it was published. I have also obviously been doing freelance work and client work and all kinds of work to keep going. And there were all these big dreams I had when I had quit my job, but I actually achieved them two years after quitting my job. And I was like, oh my God, like this seems like an awesome problem to have. But suddenly I just felt nothing. Like I didn't feel perfectly happy or perfectly fulfilled the way that you think you're going to feel when you achieve those really big goals that you wanted to achieve, which for me was like working with certain clients, big dream clients, publishing a book, doing things like that. And so then I was like, oh my gosh, I feel nothing. And I felt like, in fact, I actually felt like closing in more instead of opening up more, which is how I thought I would feel getting higher profile projects and, you know, publishing a book that does get distributed out to a much larger audience than I could control. And I was meeting people also at the time who were just like, not, I would say just kind of disingenuous in their interest in being friends with me. And it had more to do with like a perceived value of yeah, 
Yeah. You know know what I mean? mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it was making me feel even worse. Like, oh, is this all that's waiting for me on the other side of achieving my goals? So then why even set other goals? And I don't know what those would be. So then I kind of went like my anxiety, that was my anxiety talking. And then my anxiety like really triggers my depression. So then I went into just a really deep hole of, I don't like, I cut a lot of the people out, which was one of like the first step. And then the second step was just like addressing the fact that I honestly was fucking depressed and like feeling nothing is actually what depression feels like. It's not that I'm sad all the time or that I cry. I mean, I did cry a lot for no reason, but, but that was part of it. It was like, it's nothingness I felt. And that felt so much worse than feeling sad or anything else because when you feel numb to life, it just takes away your drive to do anything. Mm-hmm. I can't you tell you how much I relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you just don't feel like getting help because you feel like, what's the point? This is the best it can get or nothing. You know, like you kind of just have this negative self-talk cycle that you dig yourself deeper into. So <laughs> then I was like, okay, I need to do something about this. So I tried to do things that I thought I loved. Like I took a trip to Tokyo because it was one of my favorite places I'd ever visited. But even while I was there, the whole time I just noticed like the people who look sad. I was thinking about the high suicide rates there and how isolated that culture is from each other. And that's all I noticed. And my husband was like, I didn't see that at all. And, and it was like, oh, this is kind of a weird like thought pattern to be having and noticing. And, and I just even thought like, while we were waiting for trains like subways are I would just be thinking like oh it'd be like so easy if I just like stepped in front of this train and it would just be over and I wouldn't have to like feel this way anymore and that's when I was like that that's probably a problematic thought to have and I talked to one of my friends who I know has you know been in treatment for similar things and she was like because I was like how do you know Like, how do you know if you have these things or if this is just how you are? And I think that's part of the hard part about mental health is like, if this, this is the way you've always been, like just being more anxious or being more depressed or whatever you might be experiencing, you don't know that that's a disordered way of thinking. So when I was talking to my friend about it, she was like, well, my doctor asked me, like, do you have thoughts about death or harming yourself? And I was like, well, I don't have thoughts about harming myself or like actively doing anything about it. But I had these thoughts where I was just like, you know, it'd be easy if it was just over and I didn't have to live with the burden of nothingness, if that makes any sense. And she was like, well, yeah, like, how would you feel if your husband felt said that to you? And I was like, and that made me cry because it would break my heart because I love my husband so much and I would never want anyone that I love to feel this way. So then I decided to um, take the first step to see a therapist to help at least get professional a professional opinion about like what I was going through. Is this normal or like, am I just experiencing a period where so much stress is kind of unbalanced my brain a little bit? Yeah. Oh, there's so much in there that was so honest that I feel really <laughs> grateful that you shared. And I mean, you can't see that I was nodding along so much the whole time, but I think uh, most people who have experienced some level of depression can relate to what you're saying and the feeling of nothingness and the fear of being a burden and that being something that prevents you potentially from taking the steps to reach out or to get help. That it's, it sounds really easy, like 
just call a therapist or just do this. And when you're in that situation, you know that that feels like oftentimes an insurmountable thing. And so, Yeah. yeah, I can completely relate to that. I also think that there's a a common thread in the sort of post-goal achievement as a trigger for depression or for feeling that way. As you said, you worked on this thing for six years and you have this focus and you're going towards it and then it happens and then it surpasses your wildest dreams. And then you're like, okay, what do I do now? Right? Like, I think all of that makes, makes so much sense. And yeah, I feel grateful that you were open to sharing that. Yeah. So when you started to go to therapy, did you find that that was helpful for you? Yeah, I actually just completed it or terminated like a year of therapy. Like my therapist was like, I think you're doing fine. Like, great. If you want to just, you know, call this a termination point, I think that I would fully support you in that. And at first I was really scared. So of course it took me like two months to finally wean off, but it was really, really helpful. Um, she helped me identify tools for dealing with anxiety, the kinds of things that a lot of therapists, like clinical therapists do tools to teach you to cope with dealing with when you're in moments of anxiety. But also she helped me identify that like I needed to maybe get more help because I try to do everything else around getting on medication or anything like that. Like I meditated and I still meditate daily and I started working out. I tried working with like a nutritionist for a while and that didn't really work out for me. I also work like I see an acupuncturist weekly um, not just for the mood disorders, but also for like physical stuff that has to do with the labor of being someone who paints a lot. And I realized I needed all these support systems around my physical and mental health. And she kind of helped me because when you're in anxiety for me, my anxiety is very like, I can't make a decision because mm-hmm. I just feel like I just go into this like thought pattern of what if, what if, what if, oh, I need to do more research. I'll do compulsive, like a ton of research. Like when I was trying to just figure out how to work out, I made like a spreadsheet of all the possible different types of gyms and classes and studios I could go to and how much they cost, but I didn't do anything Mm -hmm. about it for like a month. Meanwhile, my husband had already joined the gym and been going for like two months. (laughs) (laughs) And so she helped me identify like, okay, like it's okay to make a decision. And then if you don't, Like if you don't like it, you can choose to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so just like recognizing those patterns in myself and breaking those cycles, which of course took me like 30 plus years to get here is going to take me more time to get out of it. But it helped me realize, okay, like recognize when cycles are happening. And then just, it's just a really exciting time for, I think, like psychology and, and psychiatry of like, we can form new neural pathways in our brains and break habits and break like stories we've told ourselves or have been told about ourselves since we were kids. And like, we can change like at a physical level in our brains. And that's, I think, really exciting Mm -hmm. to know about. Yeah. One of the things that you brought up that I love is this idea of essentially like graduating from therapy, because I think I mean, I've been in and out of therapy lots of different times and sometimes it was a good fit and sometimes it wasn't. But like what I have come to learn is it actually can be a thing where sometimes I need more support than other times, right? Like if there's a specific thing that I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like I have the tools for this, or it really is helpful to have that objective professional like assistance or outside opinion and stuff like that. And I've gone through periods of time where that's been really helpful, but it doesn't mean that 
I need to do that forever, right? And that I think the same, the same has been true for me with medication at different periods. And I mean, obviously we're talking within the realm of mental health, but I think this is true with so many things. Like sometimes you just need more support than other times and that's totally fine. Yes. That was something I was like, not aware of either when I was seeking out how I was going to make myself feel better. I mean, I just really wanted to feel better. And I tried so many things on my own before I finally reached out to a healthcare professional to for more assistance. And I was worried that it meant like, this is it. It's on my record forever. It's a big black mark. Like I'm going to be in a separate folder for the rest of my life. And then I realized, I mean, through my own research and reading a lot about it and also talking to my therapist, like, and my therapist's goal, what really was like helping people move through a difficult period in their life and on with their lives and not seeing it as something that you do forever, unless you, you know, need to, of course, but that it's not a one size fits all like this is what you do forever kind of thing. And that was really helpful to me because it felt like, oh, I'm actually going to get better or like get through this and change and grow. And for like, you kind of forget as an adult that we really continue to change and grow throughout our lives. It's not like we become an adult and this is who we are. And so yeah, yeah going to seeing a therapist who, whose like modality was that really helped too. Yeah. Even though I was like a little hesitant to stop. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to deal with this all on my own. But then, you know, we did, we weaned off, like kind of, we went to biweekly and then we went to like, we took a month off. And by the time I saw her then, like, and I, I kind of did that too, because I was going through personally, like my grandmother was passing or she had been terminally ill and was about to pass. And so I didn't know how I was going to feel about that. Just kind of watching what was going to happen. And, but then I went through it on my own. She had said, you know, you can call me if I need to, you need to see me earlier, but I just went through it on my own for a month and was just very, just use the tools I had learned from her and from all the work that I had done of just listening to myself, of writing through it, of sitting with myself through it. And I discovered that I really was ready to just handle my life again on my own. Mm -hmm. That's something that I was going to ask of in sort of the aftermath of that and the period since, um, what are a couple things that you have found do help you? So definitely meditating every morning. That just helps me creatively as well. I started doing morning pages from Julia Cameron's Artist Way book, where you just write like three pages every morning, kind of just free form stream of consciousness. And that has really helped me. I used to do it in college because I also was a writer. But then when I decided to shift my focus to art and design, I really let those kinds of practices go. And in the last few months, I started doing that again. And it just really helps because I find that my mind just gets, I mean, there's just so much going on at all times. And it helps a lot to just brain dump it somewhere to get some clarity. And sometimes it even like, is just me writing out what I have to do today and figuring out how I'm going to schedule everything out. And then sometimes it's like really vivid dreams or ideas. And it kind of helps me really tune into myself better when I have it written down. And I have a really like long morning routine that gets me into my work and also into myself, which is, I keep talking about that a lot because my work as an artist and a writer really has to do with me creating things out of what I'm truly interested in, what questions I have, and sharing that in my work. And a lot of the time, it doesn't appear to me as an image. It's something that I think and write through, and then I solve it visually. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It's, it's also really nice, I think, to hear someone talk about 
just like the tools and practices and habits and stuff that work for them. Because I think oftentimes we forget that um, like we can treat ourselves like little science experiments and we can figure out what works for us. And that, but even that, I think, like I I speak from my own experience of, I know the things that make me feel better and the things that make me feel not so good. And I will tell you, that doesn't mean that I always do the things that make me feel better. Like it doesn't make me feel amazing to like grab my phone and look at Instagram first thing in the morning when I like have one eye open. That's like not the best way to start (laughs) the day. And what have I done for the last six days? Exactly that. So it's like, It's also one of those things where I think there has, there's like the self-awareness and like the figuring out what it does, what makes you feel best and all these things. And then there's the, like the grace of, I don't know, being kind to yourself when you're not a robot and you're not always going to do that. Right. That I have to be like, okay, Nicole, it's time to leave your phone downstairs tonight. Like, you know, it just, it comes and goes. Yes. Being kind to yourself is like a huge thing too, I think, because we just grow up in a society that's very critical of us. So we internalize a lot of it, us as women, us as people. And, and then we internalize all of it so that, I mean, it's a survival tactic, right? It's like, we have to feel or do a certain thing or a certain way because society tells us so that we can live and survive and not be ostracized and all this stuff. I mean, it's very primal, but at the same time, like we internalize all of it still, even if we are smarter than that, like we have to be kind to ourselves and be like, it's okay. Like, this is how you are right now. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Like I've never successfully been able to shame myself into doing anything, right? Like I can can be an asshole to myself and then that's not going to help me not look at Instagram first thing in the morning. You know, it's, I mean, that's such a silly example, but it's true for so many things. Like I know the things that make me feel the best. And sometimes I don't do them and that's okay. And sometimes I need to like, gently nudge myself back into doing them. And that's okay. And like this whole thing is like, it's a process, right? And like, sometimes we're better at it than other times. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's working out. It's like, I know I'll feel better if I work out, but just getting there is so hard. (laughs) Like, I don't know why I make it as easy as possible for myself. Like I get in gym clothes first thing in the morning. So I'm already dressed, but then I'll like, take two. I I literally did the dishes and my laundry and cleaned the kitchen this morning just so I didn't have to go to the gym right away. (laughs) Like I'll do almost anything to not go. Even though when I get there, I enjoy it. It's a pleasant experience. I get to listen to my favorite music or my podcast. And I like being on a treadmill for 30 minutes because I don't push myself in any way. I'm just like, I just have to be here for 30 minutes. I can walk the whole time. I can walk, run. I can run. Like I don't have strict goals like that. My main goal is just to move my body and it's still so hard. Like the bar is so low for myself and I'm still like, I still maybe go twice a week. I want to go three to four to five times a week, but you know, sometimes I just don't. Oh my God. This is all so human. It's like this, (laughs) it's so funny too, because it's not even like you're saying, oh, there's this thing that I should do that I don't want to do. Like, you know, from your lived experience as you, that you legitimately feel better when you do this thing. And isn't it so funny? Like, that still there's an obstacle to do it. I think about this all the time that it's like, well, you don't have to be in the mood to do the thing in order to do the thing. That was something, so I don't really run anymore, but when I, I basically quit drinking and started running on the same day, running was like my way out of the hole essentially. And Uh I had never been an athlete. I literally couldn't run two minutes. Like it was complete beginner status. And so Uh much of what I learned through that, like four years of running and kind of being active for the first time, were these like life lessons that I apply to so many other things. And this idea that like, you don't have to be in the mood to do the thing in order to do the thing has stuck with me so much because it used to be like, 
What's wrong yeah. with you that you're not in the mood to do that? You know that this makes you feel better. I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. You don't want to do it because it's hard. And it's like way easier to stay on the couch, you know? And like, yeah. But it is so funny the way our mind is, hey, you should do the dishes. You should like my house is never cleaner than when I have a blank page of things that I need to write. <laughs> yes. <right>? Like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, oh my God. But all oh these gosh. little things, it's like, it's just so relatable. Yeah. I mean, I wish someone would invent like a better way to get us to move our bodies. But I mean, until then, I guess this is it. (laughs) (laughs) Until then. Yeah, I guess. That's so funny. Just everyday struggle is going to be it. So you mentioned having a long morning routine. I'm finding, uh, especially lately, I'm really curious about the true details of people's lives, especially people who work for themselves. I would love to hear more about your like daily schedule, your routines and habits. Like what does a typical, let's say, work day look like from you from beginning to end? Like, do you wake up with an alarm? Like, talk me through what your day is like. Yeah. Wow. I love reading about people's routines as well. I mean, I even have that book that's like daily rituals. Yeah, the I have it too. Yep. Like famous people. <laughs> <laughs> because I just love like how people live their lives and the minutia of it. So I don't wake up with an alarm clock, but I've been thinking about doing it because I want to get up earlier. I'm not a natural morning person. So I usually wake up around 8.30 or so when my husband goes to work and he kind of wakes me up to tell me he's going to work and that's when I get up. And so I do get up and like check my email real quick and make sure there's nothing pressing from anyone, which usually there isn't. So I really don't need to do this, but I do anyway. And then I will be on Instagram for probably a little bit too long. And then I will meditate with my Calm app, which I love. There's a daily meditation. So I just do that. It's about 10 minutes. And then I usually my dogs are in bed with me too. And I cuddle with them a little bit. And then I put on a podcast and do like the whole brushing teeth, washing face routine. And when, and then I go into the kitchen, I usually clean up the kitchen a bit from the night before, do the dishes and make my matcha latte all while listening to this podcast. Then I have my matcha latte and do my morning pages. And I do it on this website called 750words.com. It's the numbers 750words.com just because it's a really like clean interface and you do like one every day and they, there's a point system and stuff and they kind of like scan your writing for some metadata and they'll tell you like your mood that day and what you were interested in and what the weather was like. I like those kind of metrics. It just makes me feel like I did my thing for the day and I got some like, and I got evaluated on it and some stickers and rewards. Uh, I'm very sticker motivated. I am also very sticker motivated. It's why (laughs) I don't use, I mean, I use an online scheduling tool for the podcast, obviously, as you know, but I have a paper planner and a paper calendar and paper to-do list. And I like the feeling of crossing it off and I'll write things on the list just so that I can then cross them off afterwards. It's like that falls under the sticker thing, I think. Yeah. I do the absolute same thing. And when I try to get myself into a new routine, like when I was trying to do the getting into the routine of morning pages and working out, I was also giving myself little stickers in my actual physical planner. (laughs) No, that's amazing. It's like, do the things that work, right? Like this makes me happy. So why not have these stickers? Yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah. Right. Like it's like the whole aesthetics of joy is like a real thing of making you feel good in your life. Okay. So then after that, ideally I would go work out and this happens maybe half the time. Like I said, I go like maybe two times, three times a week in a good week. And then if I don't work out, it's usually because I have something press. Like if I don't go right away, it's because I usually have something pressing like emails to reply to, something to work on. Um, I do a lot of my admin stuff in earlier part of the day, like emails, invoicing, contracts, reviews, negotiating, 
mailing, prepping, shipping orders for my shop, anything like that. Any type of writing work I'll do earlier because I'm more clear. And then I switch gears kind of like late afternoon to doing the creative work, like the drawing and the painting part and the, the concepting. And that I like to do with like either a TV show on Netflix that I've seen a million times or that I'm currently obsessed with or a podcast. And I'll just do that pretty much until seven o'clock when my husband gets home. And then we, well, usually he makes dinner and (laughs) I am maybe working for another hour. And then I try to give myself a hard stop at eight o'clock so that I don't do any more work at night. Because if I keep working at night, I'm a night person, I'm a night owl, and I get really creative at night. And that's usually when people aren't emailing me or messaging me or asking me for things. So then I am able to totally tunnel vision focus in my studio. I, if I let myself do that, I'll just work until three or four in the morning every single day. And it's really not good for my... Because then I'll start to have this like vampire schedule where I'll sleep into like noon or one and then I don't feel great because I just feel behind the whole time. So for me, it works to just like have a hard stop at eight, spend time with my husband and my animals and like read or watch a movie or something on TV, something new and just force myself to get into a mental break. I'm trying to work on a better nighttime routine because I have insomnia. Like I've had it since I've been working for myself, which I think might be something that's common for people who work for themselves because there's so much uncertainty and unknown. And that's when my brain likes to ask all those questions when I'm trying to sleep. Like maybe we should do this or um, what about this? Or how am I going to solve this problem? Like it does a lot of creative problem solving then. So right now my night routine is like I have sleepy time tea and then um, I take magnesium and then I do my whole skincare routine, which I just really love doing. I love the whole Korean 10 step uh, skincare routine. It just makes me feel really like I'm taking care of myself. And then I'll get into bed, read for about an hour and hopefully go to sleep. If I can't, then I'll take a melatonin. Like, and when I say I can't, I mean like I'm laying there for an hour, two hours, three hours, like just tossing and turning, which is the worst feeling mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, I'm I'm not a great sleeper either. And it's I, I also do the magnesium and the sleepy tea and a lot of the other things that you've said. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is all incredibly relatable. And then still, sometimes you're laying in bed and that's when your brain thinks it's a really good time to be like, well, what if this happens? And what if you wind up like totally broken and homeless and alone? And like, what if I'm just like, this is my, can we do this during the day, please? Like, Yeah. Or it'll finally come up with the answers of all the things I wanted. Like, ooh, this should be the title of your next book. Or, ooh, maybe you should make a piece about this. Or, ooh, you should launch a program about this. And like all the right words will finally come up. But I'm like, I can't get up right now. Otherwise, I'm going to lose the sleepy. Like, the whole mood I'm in. So I do keep a notepad by my bed to try and like, if I do need to, but of course, you know, ever since I started doing that, nothing has come. So no, I mean, yeah, of course that makes complete sense. I, I wonder, I think about this kind of stuff too. Like, I wonder if there's a way to train ourselves to have that type of stuff happen earlier in the day. Like I think sometimes like maybe if I make more space, I've experimented with yeah. also having a hard stop on my work day and like using the time, like at the end of the day to like, make the list for the next day. Like what are the yeah. three like impactful things that I'm going to get done even if nothing else gets done? And like, I, I, that's the system that works the best for me is identifying like three tasks that are going to move the chains down the field. Because the hardest thing for me is uh, unlike where you have client work and other things, like I actually have very few deadlines for stuff. I mean, other than when I'm like, okay, you and I are meeting on Skype at one o'clock or whatever. 
And so there's plenty of things that I want to do or that I think would grow the business or that I feel really excited about, but I don't actually have to do them. And those tend to be the things that I procrastinate on the most. And so essentially giving myself like non-negotiable, like these are the three things that are going to move the chains down the field. Like you have to do these things today. And I don't know, I've been experimenting with like ending my workday with trying to get really organized for the next day and like feeling like, okay, Uh clean slate in my brain. I don't know. Maybe it's helping maybe a little bit. I like that. Yeah. There have been times when I do that, especially when I'm really busy and I should try doing it more like you're saying, like, because right now I'm moving into a phase in my career where I'm not working on client work as much. And I'm working on bigger, deeper projects, like Mm -hmm. newer, more books that aren't as heavily deadline driven. And I'm the same way where I'm like, well, I'll just address the things that are urgent and that I need to address today versus making progress on the projects that are much longer, bigger term projects. And that's kind of, you know, then it gets me into places where I'm like knocking out four paintings a day because my book deadline is two weeks away when I had four months to work on it. So I like the making a list at the end of the day. That's kind of a nice brain dump and organization and frees your brain up to do the creative work of just being present. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly not perfect, but it's something that I'm working (laughs) with right now. Like I am in definitely a business building phase, like in terms Mm -hmm. of plans for 2019 and trying to do new stuff. And I had a talk with myself when I got back from my hike (laughs) and I'm like, okay, the only way this is going to happen is if you come up with a better system and a better container. And it can't just be, I'm going to work on what I feel like working on, or I'm going to like, there has to be Mm -hmm. some more structure around what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm very much in the place of, of trying to figure this out. And again, I think with this kind of stuff, there's no right answers. Cause like the flip yeah. side, I'm definitely a morning person. Like I'm, you know, up usually by six at the latest and I read oh in gosh. the morning and, but yeah. also, but I'm in bed like before nine, <laughs> like a lot of times. Right. So <laughs> yeah. we were like, I have dinner at eight or whatever. I'm like, that's bedtime. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's like kind of figuring out your own rhythms too. And for me, it's like, I write best in the morning. I do those kinds of things best in the morning. And I prefer to record in the afternoon. Right. So it's like, you learn your own rhythms as much as possible. And obviously not everyone has control over their own workday, but basically the conversation that I had with myself is I was like, you made this choice to work for yourself for a reason. So why are you fighting your natural nature so much? Oh, absolutely. I have that same struggle because I feel like, well, I mean, obviously part of my day is structured around when my husband is not here and his work schedule, right? Because that's kind of how you exist in the world. You don't exist by yourself. You exist. A lot of people have families or other um, things to consider. But what's frustrating for me was like, oh, like I work better at night, but I really need to keep a more human schedule, not just for because of his schedule, but also because of like my editors and my agents that I need to talk to are also like, usually I email them in the morning because my agents on in New York, some art directors I work with are on the East Coast or Central Time. So I need to like participate in the world because I don't exist alone. But also like, I find that if I structure myself, that way, then I actually like force myself to get the work done. Whereas if I was like, oh, I could work on it all night if I wanted to, then I will just work on it all night. Like I won't force myself to, okay, I have four hours left to do X, Y, Z. That's what I'm going to do and knock out, you know, Mm -hmm. then I'll just be on Pinterest forever looking for inspiration (laughs) or doodle a million concepts when I really just need to narrow it down to four. So giving myself that structure really helps. And then allowing myself to be like, okay, like I feel really motivated right now. I'm just going to work at night, but I find myself not even really wanting to do that anymore, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing too, is like things change, our rhythms change. Like I, 
something that I think about a lot too, people often ask why I choose to do the podcast this way, where I release basically an entire season at once, especially <laughs> because what I have learned, I don't know if this is true. It's the uh, iTunes, like Apple podcast algorithm. Like it prefers if you do it more often in terms of like where it shows you in search results and stuff, like the way that I'm doing it is actually probably not the best way <laughs> in regard to that. But for me, like I'm someone who I would rather do a ton of work in a relatively short period of time, like a ton of the same kind of work and then have a break from it. Like I actually don't deal well with like, I'm going to write one hour every morning. Like I would rather go Mm -hmm. somewhere for a week and write all day, every day for seven days and then be done with that project. So that's the other thing too is, and maybe it's not, you know, maybe this isn't possible with someone's job if they, you know, work for someone else or have a different structure. But I think with hobbies, with creative projects, with everything, like uh, this is something that I'm trying to pay more attention to is what actually works best for me and why am I trying to square peg round hole myself into things that don't make sense, you know? And sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do, but the things that we do have control over that I'm like, I actually don't need to write for one hour a day. Like I can clear a schedule and write for eight hours a day for a short period of time, you know, and just starting to think about things like that. I am the same way. I'm like, I just, I say my approach is like being a juggernaut where it's like, when I'm doing one thing, I just want to do that thing. Like I... I'm like an object at rest when I'm at rest. And when I'm an object at work, I'm at work. I'm just like in work mode. And so I like being able to do that too, where it's just like, okay, now I'm just work, focusing on my book. Here's two months of like serious focus on just my book and not taking on other projects. And then like what was harder was getting okay with like, I would finish everything I needed to do by like two or three o'clock, you know, when I'm not in a serious project mode. And I'll be like, I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> like, oh I guess God, I could yes. start these other personal projects I've wanted to start. Or I could just take the afternoon off and like read all afternoon or just lay down on the couch with my dogs, like, and take a nap. And only in the last year after doing all this other personal health work that I realized it's okay to just do that. It's okay to just finish. Like, and I felt like in the beginning, when I first started working for myself, I would talk to my husband a lot and be like, oh, I didn't do any work today. I just like had to reply to all these emails, send like all the shipping, order these things. And then it was already, you know, six o'clock. And he's like, that all sounds like work to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. Like 80% of it is going to be the unglamorous business part. And 20% is going to be what you see on Instagram. Yeah. And I also think that there is such a glorification of being really busy. This is something that I yes. work on a lot because yeah. I am a sticker person, as we talked about, right? Like I like the validation. Yeah. I like feeling productive. And I've gotten so much validation throughout my life and different paths in my career for doing all these things or being really busy or, oh my God, I'm so tired. Or there's just like such a badge of honor around that. And it's a really easy default place for me to fall into. And it doesn't make me happy. And I don't want my worthiness to be like attached to my busyness or to my productivity. And that goes into the mental health stuff too. Cause then when I'm in periods of time where I'm not well and not doing that, it's extra bad for me because I've attached so much meaning to my creative output, right. Or things like that. And yeah, it's taken a lot for me to let go of the guilt of, oh, it's 3 p.m. on a Thursday. I should be working. Like why? Like the workday is arbitrary, right? Like if I've gotten my things done or like that I'm still a worthy person, I don't have to be working at the time that just because someone else is also working at that time. And yeah, yeah, easier said than done. But I think about that a lot of what if I'm actually just not that busy? Like what would that be like (laughs) if I didn't need to prove that I was so important? I don't know. Yes. Oh my gosh. I relate to that so much. That whole concept of worthiness is something that I, you know, didn't really think about that much. And then when I was struggling with all these things, my therapist was like, 
do you, why do you feel like you're not worthy of this success that you have to prove yourself all the time by, you know, working really hard? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I never thought about that. Like, I never thought about it in those terms. And obviously I read Brene Brown's books and it really helped me realize like I was, yeah, doing that exact thing where I'm like, oh, I'm worthy of all my, like proving over and over again. Like I have this incredible work ethic and that's what gets me everything that I have when really like, yes, that's true. But also like part of it is luck. Part of it is who I am as a person and what I bring to the table, not just how hard I can work myself to death. That's, I love that you're willing to talk about luck. I've been thinking about this too lately that, you know, we want to think that everything is under our control. And if we just work harder and like, yes, hard work is part of it. Also talent is part of it, right? There's some things that just you have the talent or you don't for certain things. Mm -hmm. And luck is so real, whether that's the luck of, you know, the, your book being successful, like it could have been the same book and just as great at another period that like, wasn't really like, I don't know, the market didn't want that, right? Or it wasn't times that you just don't know. You don't know like what's going to hit like the huge flash success point. And that like combination of hard work and like whatever discipline, determination and talent and luck, like that's so real. It really is. Like timing is everything. My book came out in 2016, right before the election. And it was the first book of its kind really in that genre. And now you can see that the market is filled with books like that. But what's crazy is that when I was pitching the book around, like we talked to, I think my agent sent it to about 25 different editors at different publishing houses. We talked to about nine of them. And then a couple gave us offers, which was incredible. Like I didn't expect that to happen. I had talked to other friends who were published and they were like, oh, usually it could take like a month or so before you start hearing from people. I had my first call, which actually was with Chronicle Books, like three days after we had sent out the proposal. And it was just happening so fast. But at the same time, I worked on this project for, at that point, like four years before. And I had been told so many times by people that like they didn't get it. It didn't make sense. Um, it wasn't interesting. It was never my biggest seller when I like took it to shows and on my online shop. And, but there were people who did get it. And people who did get it really loved it, which was great. Like Matt Groening picked him up a zine fest I was at. And it was just just little victories like that help me keep going with like something I'm really passionate about and like the right people are responding to it. So I'm just going to keep doing it, not knowing where it's going to go. And it was four years of that, like not knowing where it's going to go. This little project that I kept working on in the background that I would keep adding women to as I researched, or I would do a gallery show of the pieces because the original pieces, because gallery owners saw me at a craft show and asked me if I wanted to do that. Like, and so it was like four years of very little success or just, and holding on to those little victories before my agent saw it on a blog that I didn't even know it was published on and asked me if I would want to turn it into a book. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And at the time I was deciding if I wanted to like kind of wean off freelancing and go full into my full-time job, or if I needed to quit my full-time job and go full into freelancing, because like I said, it was at the point where I was working like 24 hours a day. And But even then, like I signed on with her in August, September, and I didn't quit my job until the end of October. And I didn't write the proposal for the book until April of the next year. Things take time is like such the message that I'm getting from this. And I think that that is also very refreshing because it really is easy to 
like see someone like you that has like a really popular Instagram, for example, with like lots of engagement and like you've worked with these great clients and your work is so beautiful and to think like, oh my God, you know, this just happened. Of course, obviously it didn't just happen, but it's just like so nice to hear the twists and turns of, well, I had this idea and no one was really that into it. And I kept working on it in different capacities for like four years is a long time, right? Like if I'm honest with myself, have I ever worked on anything for four years? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, so then there's that. And then it's like, I don't know. You just don't know what's going to hit. So, but I want to back up a little bit. The timing turned out to be right. But I was going to say like, even more than half of the publishers we sent it to, we're still like, we don't get this book. We don't get this project. Like they turn it down. And now a lot of them have similar comparable titles. Yeah. I think often about all the people who said no uh, to publishing Harry Potter. And I'm like, how do you (laughs) live with yourself after that? Yeah. But so let's talk actually um, more specifically about the books. So the first book is called Bad Girls Throughout History. Tell me what you mean when you use the term bad girls. So that idea came up when I was at the end of my time at art school. I had quit my job and gone back to art school in in my mid-20s. And so I was like, supporting myself through art school. It was a huge student loan. I had no debt before. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Like, this is me going hundred percent in on this. And my artwork just wasn't that well received in art school. And I was totally freaked out and stressed about that because I had gone all in on this. And so towards the end, I started to realize like, I didn't have to take every teacher's opinion, like, and apply it and change myself. I could just listen to what they said, take what I needed and leave the rest behind. And when I worked on this project, I was especially struggling with like teachers who really didn't get my work, who just liked a certain trendy style that my work wasn't. I liked commercial commercial feminine work and it wasn't something that was really that praised in art school. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to make a project. And I, you know, read all the time too from my background as a writer. And I had read an article about Ada Lovelace and she was the world's first computer programmer, not first female, but like first ever. And I was like, damn, like it must've been really hard to create this thing that didn't exist and then convince people that it's something that they needed and like still, you know, be accepted in society, like find your way basically. Right. And so I was like, okay, I'm doing that on a very, very small scale here. And so I just thought, you know what? I'm tired of following the rules. I'm tired of like listening to teachers and other people tell me what the right thing to do is. I'd also struggled with like working at places where bosses would be like, that's just the way it is when people were behaving badly. And, you know, just the frustration of like finding my own place in this world and who's right and who's wrong. And it turns out like there are no rules and everybody's just kind of winging it. So then I was like, you know, I'm tired of being a lifelong good girl. I'm going to write a book about or look for all these role models who are bad girls who did things that they were not expected to do. And that's where the title comes from. I love that so much. So this might be kind of a strange question, but when you look ahead, let's say next year, 2019, what would it look like for you to be a bad girl in that context? Like what's your aspiration? For myself or for everyone? For you, well, both maybe. Oh my gosh. I think if people were to live their authentic, true joys in life um, in any capacity that they can, 
I think would be incredible because we're so expected and conditioned to, and we're conditioned like through school to like sit down, work quietly for someone else. And if we could all tap into like what truly brought us joy and our true passion and be who we wanted to be instead of all like letting fear rule all of that, we'd all be so much happier. I love that. I so my birthday is in June and my I tend to be a kind of very reflectiony goal setter type person at my yeah. birthday at the new year uh-huh. like that's just the type of person that I am. And you know, I had all these goals and I was thinking, okay, what do I want to do in the next year? And I was like, you know what? I wound up ripping up the paper and I was like, my goal for this next year of my life is to just be my most real like too much self. That's my biggest fear is like or end feedback I've yes. gotten is like you're too much, you're too loud, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just going to do that and see what happens next. And so I hear a lot of that in what you're saying of just like becoming more you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like just not being afraid to be who you really are and your authentic self and letting that be your guiding light and how you make choices in your life. Because I think so much like anger, sadness, resentment, anxiety comes from not doing that. Yeah, I think so too. I I also think that it's really easy to tell the story of, you know, just like be yourself and everything will work out. Yeah. And I think actually that's not always the case. Like you, I will be too much for some people and it, but yeah. it works as a great filter, right? That it's like, yeah. you get to know who your friends are, what the projects are, who the right clients are for you, what the right situation is. Like the more, like you said, that you're tapping into your authentic joys and letting yourself get totally obsessed and excited about the things that really light you up and not being as small and contained. If that's not, you know, what feels good and natural for you, then the things that fall away, it might be painful, but on the other end of that, I don't know. I think it's probably worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talking, talking about authentic joys, what brings you a lot of joy? my dogs. Uh, I love animals. My husband, like he has been a really stabilizing force in my life. We've been together for 13 years. So we've obviously grown a lot to um, get to this point. But I mean, it's just being around him. He's still just my favorite person. So it's really nice to have that in my life. And so many other people and things can change. Mm -hmm. Books. I love books. I love reading books. I love discovering new books. I love getting lost in books, like new TV shows. Honestly, I'm just a very like avid consumer of pop culture. I just really love seeing what other people create in different mediums, in different ways. Let's see what else brings me joy. Plants. I have a lot of house plants. (laughs) Gosh, just lots of things bring me joy. Friendships, new friendships with really inspiring people like yourself. That really brings me joy. Like I've moved into a place where I felt like last year was a real test of like, what is going to happen? Is this, what kind of life do I want to live? And ever since then I've been attracting, to me, it was attracting a tribe of people who were authentic, true, inspiring, passionate, loyal, loving people into my life as my tribe of friends. And I feel like ever since I made that intentional shift, it's brought those people into my life. So that's also really exciting. Because when you're dealing, when I deal with like depression, my brain wants to be like, you don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Friendships need to look a certain way. Like people have a huge group of friends since high school. And that's like not how I am and not ever how I was. So it's accepting that like, I like one-on-one relationships where we can have deep conversations like this, like for real. (laughs) And, And then also like we could do silly stuff too. And it's, Like, that's really meaningful to me to start finding people and friendships that 
reflect that. Yeah. I love what you're saying so much. This idea of giving yourself permission to step away from maybe what you've been told or been shown is the way that things have to look, whatever those things are like friendships, for example, right? Oh, well, It was the same thing that happened for me when people would talk about how college was the best time of their life, or that's where you find your, you know, deepest friends. To be honest, Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a very good time in college, and that was Mm -hmm. due to a lot of different factors. But I don't really still have any friends from college. Like I don't. So there's this whole thing Mm -hmm. of like, oh my god, did I do this wrong or whatever? And it's like, Mm -hmm. no. Sometimes people find their people elsewhere, or you know, it doesn't have to look like Sex in the City, where you have this tight group of friends and you guys do everything together. And like, it can look like that, but it doesn't have to. And being able to say what are the like activities and people and situations that make me feel most myself and that make me feel most joyful, even if those things are silly or sometimes I'll find myself like apologizing for, oh, this is like, maybe not that, this is kind of a shallow thing to like or whatever. It's like, just like what you like. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, matter, totally. you know? And yeah. like the more that I can fill my day and my time with actually the things that I really enjoy instead of trying to pretend to be this person that I'm not, or maybe I wish that I was, or that I thought yeah. that I was going to be. It's just like so much less pressure. Yeah. And it's just, it takes so much energy to do that too. And once you stop doing that, you have so much more energy for everything else that actually excites you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back in time a little bit, you mentioned um, how you decided to quit a job and go to art school in your mid twenties. Tell me about the day that you decided to do that, or essentially what led to that decision. Cause I feel like there's so much fear. There can be so much fear around making a change, especially potentially if we feel like, oh, it's maybe too late to do this or the chance has passed or I should have studied this initially. Or mm-hmm. I don't know, we think we're supposed to be on a certain schedule. And yeah. obviously you made a change and mid twenties is I guess arguably still kind of early to do that. But I'm just curious yeah. what that process looked like for you. It didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like I should be more responsible than that. But so I was in a job that I, it was fine, but I had a terrible boss, like to the point where I had so much anxiety working for her that I was so physically ill. Like I would black out from stomach pain at work. And so that was my body's way of saying a change has to come. And at first I thought maybe that's getting another job, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I had three jobs. Like I, had switched jobs three times, like in my early twenties. So I had tried that before. Every time things got bad, I would just get a new job. And so I was like, okay, how, and like at the time I thought I was going to be a career novelist, which is not really a job that you work towards. Like, you know, like in your mid twenties, right? At least for me, I was like, okay, I want to gain a little more life experience and experience more things before I write my like great novel. But I wasn't writing my novel at all. I was spending all my time reading craft blogs on Etsy. And at the time, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was going to CalArts, which is this really great art school here in Southern California. And so I'd visit him and I would be so like envious of what everyone else was doing, or I'd be so interested in. I was like a shadow artist. I love going to galleries and seeing shows and meeting artists, but I didn't do it myself. And then I was like, talking to my mom one night about just how miserable I was at my job. And I didn't know what to do because I just didn't want to get another job. That was basically what I was doing in a a new environment because it just wasn't working out. And my mom was like, well, you always like drawing and art. Why don't you wanted to go to art school when you were little, but like, I didn't know anyone who went. And so I didn't know how to put together a portfolio or go to art school when I was younger. 
So she was like, why don't you take some extension classes now at the local art school, like for fun and see where that goes. And I was like, okay. So I took my first figure drawing class, like the year I applied to art school. I made my husband take it with me because I was like too shy (laughs) to do it on my own, which is like funny because I'm not really a shy person, but it was just so foreign to me and obviously so important to me that I didn't want to do it wrong. And so I took that class and I was hooked and I was like, okay, I really like doing this. And then I was reading all these blogs of people who are like illustrators and selling their art on Etsy. And that was the first time I had seen real working like illustrators now, not like just the old masters who did jobs that don't exist anymore. So I was like, okay, maybe I could do that. Like I can make art and sell it on Etsy. But like once I started painting and drawing, I was like, okay, I really want to get to a certain level that like, you know, when you're beginning, it's like that Ira Glass quote about how your tastes don't match your skills yet. So I was like, I'm a very, I love school. So I was like, I need to go back to school to do this. I don't think you need to go back to school to do this. But for me, I really enjoy the structure. I wanted to get out of working like and being miserable 40 hours a week. And I knew that I would just really respond well to being in an academic structure. So I put together a portfolio that year by taking extension classes and then meeting with the admissions counselor at the art school I went to. And he helped me kind of shape my portfolio so that it was ready when I applied. And so I applied eight months after I took my first drawing class and I was just going to keep applying until I got in because art schools kind of do a rolling admission where you can, you know, reapply with a new portfolio every time, you know, so you can keep getting better. And I got in the first time and I got a half scholarship. And so I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And that's how I did it. It was like, if I just stayed where I was, I was so miserable and so sick. Like I had to take a two week medical leave from work because I was so sick. Like I couldn't keep doing it. So that wasn't an option. And like, I was just going to get older. So why not try doing this thing now? That was an opportunity. I thought it passed. And I had met more people. The school I went to art center in Pasadena, it had like the average age of freshmen were, was 23. There were a lot of people who went there who were a little older, who had some college or some schooling behind them. And so that made it also seem to me more like a thing I could do. Like I was in school with a bunch of 18 year olds who were amazing and had been drawing since they were, could hold a pencil. But I was also with some other people who were older, like me, who had some more life experience and work experience and were deciding to make this a serious thing. Yeah. There's so much in what you just said that I think is really important. Like starting with this idea of, experimentation, right? Like the conversation that you had with your mom of, Hey, why don't you just take a class and see what happens? Like sometimes we think it has to be this like completely binary black and white, all or nothing, right? Either you quit everything and you go to the most extreme version, you sell all your stuff and like move to Bali or, I mean, not that that's a bad choice. That's the choice you want to make, but like, it doesn't have to be that. Like you can take one class. You can see like Mm -hmm. so often we don't know how we feel about something until we actually try it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like maybe yeah. the thing you think you want to do actually isn't, or maybe it is more than you realize. But this sort of like finding what's the smallest version of this that I could try maybe without blowing up my life and like see how that yeah. goes. Like I, I love that idea. And I also love the idea of sort of challenging the stories that you say to yourself that are holding you back. Like, oh, I'm too old for this, or it's too late. Like to actually look around and be like, oh no, there's other people that are my age and older. It doesn't mean there aren't still 18 year olds in your classes also, but 
it's like funny how we just like make out a reality to be this like really rigid thing. And once you start looking around, that's how it was for me when I wanted to take some baking and pastry classes, like in the last mm-hmm. couple of years, like, oh my God, it's just going to be me and a bunch of 18 year olds. And there were 18 year olds there and they were lovely, but also there were people mm-hmm. that were like twice my age, you know? And mm-hmm. it's just so funny the way that like we tell ourselves these yeah. stories. And I was like, oh my God, I already have a bachelor's degree. I don't need another bachelor's degree. But like an MFA program for illustration would have been like more focused on your own thesis and projects. And I just wanted the technical skills, which is what you do in undergrad. So I was like, yeah, I'm just going to get two bachelors. Yeah. I think ugh, there's, it's, it's so good. I love talking to people about like periods of their life where they either made leaps or like it was a change point. Because I think even though maybe someone listening isn't thinking about going back to art school specifically. There's just like yeah. so much <laughs> relatability in that, which makes me want to ask you, like, I guess, fast forward a little bit in your career, you were talking earlier about how you were working a full-time job and doing freelance and doing your own stuff mm-hmm. on the side. And then there sort of came the fork in the road of, okay, this isn't sustainable to literally work, you know, 24 seven. Am yeah. I going to work for myself, right? That decision process, which I think is is also something that a lot of folks can relate to. And I think there's like this romanticized idea of just believe in yourself and it'll happen. And like, yeah, okay, no, like there have to be real logistical things in place. So can you talk about how you ultimately made that decision? Yes. So that year I had been looking for another job because the job I was working, I enjoyed, but it was really far away. So I was commuting three hours a day as well. And I was like, homicidal by Thursday, especially in LA traffic. And so I was like, I just need another job. Like that's similar because I was working in um, packaging design for a toy company. And I was like, I just need to work for another company that like the job is similar, but much closer to where I live. And there are companies around me that are, who do the same thing. And what was crazy to me was that like, I was going and meeting with recruiters and they constantly were like, you're you know, your portfolio is great, but we don't have like the right fit for you right now. Everything I was either underqualified for or overqualified for. And I was like, so frustrated because I've never honestly had a hard time looking for a job, like, thank God. And I couldn't get another job, which went on for like six or seven more months before I finally was like, uh, maybe I should start, maybe I should work for myself. And once I said that out loud, I like started saying it to my husband to my parents, to my friends, everybody was like, yeah, duh. And I was like, (laughs) what do you mean? How am I going to do it? And everybody was like, so supportive. But to me, I was like, but the, but the logistics of the everyday, like I'm a very social person. I enjoy working with other people, which is why I liked working in house as a designer. But I was just like, oh, I'd be so isolated, all this stuff. How am I going to make enough money? And it just got to a point where Uh, my job was putting the pressure on me to like stop working, doing freelance work outside. And I was like, you, you know, I'm not happy about that. And then, but because there were still people getting laid off around me, there were like layoffs every quarter, maybe. And this had happened at every job I had worked at, like not just the specific job, like I'd go in, everything would be great and happy. And then suddenly like there'd be some sort of budget freeze or layoffs and things like that. And then I started to really reframe how I thought about freelance work versus a quote unquote safe, secure job for someone else. And I realized like I was seeing people who had worked there for 20 plus years and they would get laid off and they had nothing else. Like they'd worked there for 20 plus years and relied on this one place for their entire livelihood. So then I realized actually like working in a house is not any scary 
faster than working for yourself. Whereas working for yourself, my potential is limitless in terms of what I could earn because it was how much, how creative and how much I could put myself out there versus my salary every year. So then I started just saving everything that I had made freelance wise that year, like just started making the logistical steps of like, how am I going to do this? So obviously I talked to my husband about it. He had a job or has a job and he was fully supportive of it. So having the support of your family or whatever your living situation is obviously is super helpful and important. I saved up about, like I figured out how much I would need if I was just living the way I was and paying for all the responsibilities I had, like my rent, my student loans, et cetera. And then I saved up at least three months of like life living expenses, basically planning not to touch it though. Like I was at least going to have that much in the bank to feel some sort of security or safety net in case checks, you know, like as a freelancer checks take 30 to 90 days to get to you and stuff like that. I, at the time was doing conventions and craft shows. So I had a couple of those set up. I've been doing it for about maybe four years at that point. So those are kind of tent poles throughout my year where I would have deadlines of when I would definitely have to create new work for myself to print and sell. So I had a loose structure like that set up. I had my money kind of figured out a little bit and tent poles figured out in case client work didn't come in. And then it probably took me three or four more months before I felt secure enough to, well, what happened was I got offered a raise and a promotion at my job. And I was like, actually, I'm leaving. I love it. (laughs) You're like, actually, bye. (laughs) Yeah. And I kind of did that all before my 30th birthday, because I was just like, you know what? I want to go to Paris, like for my 30th birthday. It's something I've wanted for a long time in my life. And I wanted to take like, 10 days off or something to do it. And I knew my job wouldn't let me. So I kind of let that be my final deadline. And I really just waited up until the deadline to do it. Yeah. And obviously it's worked out not to say that it has been easy. I'm sure this could be a whole other episode of like mistakes made and things learned in terms of like growing a creative business, which if you're down for, we could totally do a part two at some point. The one thing um, that I did want to ask, because you mentioned before that when you were in art school specifically, that your particular style wasn't always well received by teachers. And obviously as someone who does anything creative and puts it out in the world, some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it. And I'm interested in your experience in how to keep going essentially like amidst criticism? Well, write a book about it. (laughs) Find yourself a hundred idols that didn't do what was supposed to be done. But in reality, it was just like, what helped me was that I started applying for internships, maybe my second year into school. And I got one right away with Bando, which is a huge company now, but at the time it was a very small company. And I had loved their work, followed their blog. And when I got hired by them, like right away, I was like, okay, this makes sense because this is my audience. These are the companies that I want to work with. This is the type of work I want to make, stuff that's feminine, probably perceived as commercial, which is why it wasn't popular in art school where people are trying to be cool and fine arty. And I was like, there's a whole huge commercial like demographic here. And I know that because I'm in it. I am the person who's buying like beautifully illustrated journals and curtains and pillows and all this stuff that I personally want to make too. And so you just really have to like 
first of all, trust that if you are interested in something, someone else is too. And Mm -hmm. if someone else is interested in it, there's a whole audience for it. There is literally an audience for everything. And we are now in a time, like when I was in school, uh, social media wasn't a thing. And so I think blogs were kind of more of a thing. And so I just had the blogs of artists I liked that I was reading, like before I went to school too, right? But now like it's easier than ever to find people who are either doing something you're interested in or adjacent to what you're interested in and just basically find your people and you know that there's an audience for everything. And if you're really passionate about it, just keep going with it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Also, I mean, now that you've mentioned a couple of times sort of your perspective of looking at your art as a commercial venture, which I love, yeah. I, I love that because yeah. also I think that there's there's so much snobbery in different things. Like I've heard this talked about yeah. in the literary world, um, specifically by female authors who write what's known as like chick lit type books, yeah. right? And how they can yeah. sell like literally millions of books and still get no respect from the industry, yeah. right? And they're like, well, shrug, yeah. I wonder why. Things that are made by <laughs> women for women, right? Like that yeah. and some of it's like, you just kind of have to step outside of that. Yeah, you absolutely do. And also like, I struggled with that a lot, especially in the beginning, right? Because you want to be like cool and known among your peers and be getting awards at like in your specific industries. But one of my teachers said something to me that like really stayed with me where it was being a famous illustrator is like being a famous dentist. Like no one cares. <laughs> like, and I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, that really makes sense. And at the end of the day, I don't care if like this other famous illustrator knows who I am. I care about the people who my work resonates with and we make that connection. That's what's meaningful to me in my work. I would love to sell out. You know what? Millions can buy like a beautiful Tudor mansion. You know, like it can buy you security. So you don't have to take all, every single little job. Like it gives you fuck you money so that you don't have to do what someone else wants you to do. You can do what you want to do and create and put out into the world. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with empowering people because their work, you, their work resonates with you. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I assume you want people like me who look at your Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, what can I do to make her design a tattoo for me? You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm obsessed with your work. Like, and then, okay, they're going to buy your stuff. And like, but also I think it's very empowering to hear you talk about that because I think this is like a full circle back to the beginning of the conversation of yeah. the question of what do you wish people were more honest about? For me, the two things that I always say in response to that are some version of sex and money. Like that's always what I want to talk about. And like with money, it's like such a thing to shy away from. Like, oh, I just like want to make good art or I just like want it to be good. Like, fuck, I want to make money. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like both can be true. Like you can have integrity in the thing that you make and in whatever your art form is. And also like getting well-reviewed by your peers isn't going to pay your mortgage necessarily. So like, why is it not fine to be like, I also would like to be commercially successful. Like we live in a capitalist society. Think about that what you will, but the truth is that like money is real, you know? Yeah. And it's also like commercial work means it reaches more people. Mm -hmm. It reaches more people who need your work, who want to hear your story and know about you and maybe have that spark that something in their lives. Like that's what I was mentioning about earlier on where I really love like finding inspiration in people who are really obsessive about their work, who are really into and passionate about the thing they're doing and do it to an incredible degree of skill. And because they put so much passion and time into it. And it's like, when you put yourself out there as that person, that could spark that for someone else. Like I'm super inspired by this person who's like sculpting and doing things that are very different than what I do. And it's kind of introducing that idea into my work. 
and making me feel more passionate about it again, mm-hmm. as opposed to me being out here alone. Like if you're in a small town and no one's like you and you just like, you know, you really need to see things to believe them, believe that they're possible for yourself. Yeah, totally. So thinking along these lines of, you know, a creative business, like the business side of what you do, can you share a few of the specific things that you've done over the last couple of years that you feel have contributed most to your success as a working artist? Like which actions or steps have had the most impactful ROI, so to speak? Yeah, I would say definitely creating personal work for myself has been super, super important because it helped me develop my own voice and point of view of what I want to say, because people hire me for my style, which is something that I worked really hard to develop. And I think in the beginning, people tell you like, don't worry so much about your style. But I think it's not like a style is not a thing where you're like, I'm going to draw like this artist and, and then this is my work, which works for some people too, especially in very niche markets, but, and not niche in a bad way, like for specifically like fashion illustrators really have like a look, right. But taking that time to develop personal work, like a large body of personal work really drove the type of work that I then was hired to do Mm -hmm. because like people don't know, even having worked on the inside and hiring freelancers, it helped me realize like, I really need to see that, you know, how to draw the thing that I want to hire you to draw that you probably want to do. Like if you want to draw like a character, like a doll type of character in a cartoon style, like do that in your portfolio. If you want to make floral patterns and have pillows at anthropology, do that in your portfolio, like without anyone asking you to, and so that they know to hire you for it. Like people who are hiring have a million things on their plate and they just need it really spelled out for them. Like I know how to do this exact thing that you're looking for that you want to hire me to do. So giving myself those deadlines by doing shows really helped me stay on personal work when I was working in-house full-time and probably didn't feel like making personal work when I got home because I was exhausted Mm -hmm. and burnt out. That was one main thing. Working on... The second thing was... Again, it's still personal projects. Like just really delving into your personal projects um, and also staying curious, like reading a ton. I read a ton. So I read a lot of articles on the internet. That's like what sparked Bad Girls because I read an article about Ada Lovelace, which... Why was I even reading that? I don't know how I came across it, but... I did. And then it created this whole other thing for me and staying curious to learning about, like, I watch a lot of YouTube videos about just the way people make different things. Like it can be on anything like felting on makeup tutorial, like anything. And just learning about different areas just can spark any kind of thing in your area of what you want to do. And, or even just apply to like principles to what you're doing. Like also reading, um, this is again on reading, but like I had read Girl Boss when it had first come out. And what really stuck with me about it was that she just paid attention to what was going on around her. Like she paid attention to the fact that there were a lot of vintage sellers on MySpace adding girls who would like vintage clothes. And so I was just like, oh, what if I just paid attention to what people were doing? Because we have a tendency to be so focused on what we're doing and what people are thinking about us. And when should I post and what's the right thing to post? And, you know, people are doing this, so I should do this. Like, no, you should just be paying attention to like how they're doing it and what they're doing and why that appeals to you and why you're interested in the specific person's work and then apply it to how it can work for you. It's like that quote, is it like a Picasso quote that like, like the artists copy and real artists steal or something like that? 
Something like that. Yeah. I know what you're, I know what you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking like people get so like confused about that quote. Well, like what it really means is like, notice to me, what it really means is like, notice what this, like, for, for example, an artist you really admire is doing study why that appeals to you. Like for me, it was an artist like Mary Blair. I studied like her work of what really appealed to me about her work. And it was like the graphic shape language, the excellent design, the use of unexpected color. And then I applied it to my work, but it doesn't look like her work. I just applied the principles of appeal that I was really drawn to and then figured out how to use that in my work so that it would look unique. And of course I did this with like dozens and dozens of artists so that I'm mixing up a unique cocktail of what is unique to me. And so I apply that also to my business and to my social media and to the different types of work that I do. Like my business isn't just one thing. I don't just work with clients. I also have my own shop. I also do now consulting. I also write and illustrate books. So it's like, and now I'm doing more teaching and speaking because I finally feel at a place where I want to share a lot of the things that I've learned and really this hard won knowledge so that hopefully people can feel less alone in their own experience with it. Yeah. I love that so much. I love what I'm taking from what you're saying is sort of just this directive to get curious, like follow the things that you're curious about, whether that's like the YouTube video holes that you go down, right? Of like, why am I so into this? Or kind of reverse engineering the things that you love. Why do you love them so much? Like I recently did a similar thing with Instagram where I was like, okay, who are my five favorite people to follow on Instagram, right? And why, right? Is it like, why do I like watching this person's story so much? Like, what are they actually doing that keeps me so engaged? Okay, this person's photos are really beautiful. What is it about that? Like just starting to look Mm -hmm. at the things that keep me really engaged or the brands that, you know, oh, I'm gonna buy like whatever they come out with, right? Or like the people that I'm obsessed with, what are they doing that makes me feel that way? And then like you said, you start to pull lessons out of that. And I think being able to pause and take a critical look at why you love the things you love, because the answer is never, well, just because I love it. Like there's always something there. You love it because it makes you feel less alone or because it's beautiful to look at or because it was helpful for this problem that you had or whatever. And you can start to see like, okay, how do I want people to feel about what I'm creating, what I'm putting out there? And I think that there's a myth with creative work that it's this like muse inspiration. And maybe that's the case sometimes, but also it's okay to be methodical about your creative work the same way that it's okay to want to make money. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. Um, And as you probably know from listening to other episodes, um, the way we end these are with um, community questions. So essentially the Patreon community puts forth um, this season, it's nine different questions that every one of this season is answering the same nine random questions. If you're down to answer some random questions. Yeah. Um, So the first question is about self-acceptance, which has been a topic of discussion in our community lately. And I would love for you to share one thing that you've had to work to accept about yourself. My body. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a common one. The second, that, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. That, oh, just that, like, I mean, also deprogramming the societal, like, conditioning that women's bodies have to look a certain way to be valuable or important or beautiful. Um, and that it's okay not to look at 33 what you look like at 17. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Is that how old you are? Yes. I'm actually going to be, well, by the time this comes out, I'll be 34. Okay. Guy was going to say, I'm 33 too. We're the same age. Yeah. 
<laughs> who's one blogger or a podcaster, or maybe even someone that you love on social media, who's had an impact on your thinking this year? Basically, who should we be following and listening to? I really love the Forever 35 podcast. So Kate and Dory from that. Forever 35. I have never heard of that. I am adding that to my oh, list. It's like a self-care podcast of two friends talking very casually. And then they interview a lot of writers, which is really interesting. Like um, people like Samantha Irby and Jenny Han. And so it's just really interesting because they talk about routines and self-care. That's awesome. I always love hearing about new podcasts. I like love it and hate it actually. Cause I'm like, oh my God, there's already so many things that I oh, want to listen to and watch that I'm like, why are you adding something else to my list? And I'm like, well, why am I asking this question? <laughs> yeah. So next question, what's one place that you'd love to visit in the next year and why? I'd really love to visit New England during the fall and do like a road trip. Oh my God. That's my dream. Let's do that. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, just that it's like spooky and cool and has a lot of history for the U.S. anyway. I just think that'd be really fun. So we talked about this a bit already, but I'll ask it anyway, in case you want to share something that hasn't come up. What's a favorite self-care activity lately? Oh gosh, really just my skincare, my skincare routines. I know hearing you mention that a couple of times, I'm like, maybe I should wash my face. Like, I think I need, I remember reading, <laughs> should. In, I should definitely should. I remember reading in one of your Instagram stories, you were like sharing favorite products and stuff. And I was like, oh man, I need, <laughs> I should probably be taking notes on this. Well, like the f- I mean, the funny thing and the horrifying thing is that everything always changes, right? And and I'm resistant to change, of course, like I've mentioned. But like recently, my skin's kind of been freaking out because I've been doing other things like with my diet and switching up medication, like going off birth control. So like my acupuncturist was like, maybe you should ease off not using as many products anymore. <laughs> and I was like, but I love my skincare routine. Yeah. I went through some skin changes and other, like lots of other changes too, when I went off hormonal birth control. So yes, relatable content. Yeah. That was another thing I read this year that really changed my life was reading Woman Code Yep, by Elizabeth Bataille. I don't know how to say her last name, but like that was a really deep understanding about everything, like women, our own health as women and just the politics of medicine and women's health. It's crazy. Ugh, yes. Yes. What's one thing that you are objectively pretty bad at, but that you love to do anyway? Well, I don't have one that I'm objectively really bad at, but something I was super self-conscious about was singing, but I love singing anyway. So I started taking voice lessons this year, just as a, um, just like as self-care something that I enjoy doing purely for enjoyment, because my challenge to myself was to start exploring other things that I could not monetize and therefore turn into a source of stress. Yes. Isn't it so funny though, in the culture of like the side hustle and all these things, how everything you're like, Oh, I like this a little bit, or I'm a little good at this. And your mind starts to go into how can I make money from this? Like, Oh, it's okay to do things actually just for fun. Yeah. Just for the pure enjoyment of it. And this was something that my therapist has suggested. And I was like, and I had wanted to do, but couldn't decide what to do. Because, you know, I'm a really creative person. So a lot of the things I want to do, I could easily turn into a business of some sort, like the same way I did (laughs) with drawing. And so I was like, okay, it would be really hard for me to monetize singing as (laughs) as someone who's just starting now. So I'm just going to do this. And I really, really enjoy it. And I'm not as bad as I thought. It's given me a lot more confidence in other ways, like with speaking and with doing interviews, I used to have a lot of anxiety about doing interviews because I didn't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. So I just wouldn't do them. And now same with speaking, but now I'm like, 
you know what? I'm just going to put myself out there and be more like be more seen. Cause for a while, like kind of yet last year with dealing with the aftermath of like having achieved a lot of goals and everything that came with it, I was like tired of being seen and tired of being out there. But then I realized like, it's actually really important for me to do that because it's meaningful for me to connect with other people about over the things that I make work about because it's the things that I need answers to or that I'm searching for. And that's what's meaningful to me and that I make my living doing that is just incredible. So also with voice, like I'm so much more aware of my body and my voice. Yeah. And that was Yeah, I love I mean it- Again, this has come up a couple different times in things that you've said, but just this idea of experimentation and trying stuff and seeing where it leads and curiosity. It's like, I don't think when you signed up for voice lessons, you were like, this is going to help me be a less nervous person during interviews. Like you just never know like that this, I it's, and I find that to be really freeing that you can just sort of follow the breadcrumbs and see, and like, let yourself be surprised. And sometimes things will be dead ends, or you'll find that you don't really like the voice lessons as much as you thought, or, and sometimes you get something out of it that you never expected. And it's this kind of nudge to like, just keep an open mind and like, say yes to things that feel like maybe you would want to say yes to them. And I don't know, like there's something in that, that I really needed to hear. So I love that message. Yeah. And definitely there are going to be failures when you try out things that you don't expect. Like this turned out to be a positive, wonderful experience. I love my voice teacher. She's so incredibly talented. So I love just hearing her sing, but also she's really positive and really encouraging. And so it's really like joyful for me to go and spend time with her for an hour and just focus on doing something like singing. And then there were things I tried out, like seeing a nutritionist to try and help with like my health issues. That was a miserable failure. And I felt like so stupid, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have listened to this person and like bought all these supplements. Like there were all these signs, but really it just taught me to trust and listen to myself more and be more aware of my own body. And that it's okay to try things and have them fail. Like then I learn stuff. Mm -hmm. I love that. So um, the next question, we've talked a bunch about some different change points and forks in the road for you, but what's one thing that you've quit that maybe felt really hard to quit at the time, but wound up being the right choice? Oh, definitely my job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) No question. I love it. Yeah. So the next question, I'm excited to ask you because you said how much you read and I'm similarly obsessive reader. Which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Oh my gosh. So hard to narrow it down. I know. I know. This is like a very stressful question for people like us. So I understand. (laughs) Take a moment. It's fine. (laughs) Well, Woman Code for sure was a big impact for me that I read recently. Um, I'd highly recommend that for everyone who has woman parts. Let's see. Gosh reread often. I really also loved On Writing by Stephen King. Yeah. I love that book too. I'm looking at it right now. It's like one of the three books I have like a actual paper hard copy of. Yeah. Like I reread it. Like I love the stories he tells of his life that really sticks with me more. And then the writing advice part kind of like, I always forget because it's overshadowed by the anecdotes from his life, but it's really good advice. So when I reread it, I'm like, oh, right, right, right. This is how I write. And then... I want to like get out my list of books I read this year. I have this goal every year where my goal is to read as many books as my age. And I always make it really close, but never all the way there. But this year, I think I might make it all the way there. I have three more books to read in two weeks at this point. 
that's such a fun goal. For a couple of years, mine was to read a hundred books a year, which I oh did, which I did. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I read a ton, but this year, because I went on a three month hike that like really ate into my reading time. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Getting a Kindle and then having the LA Public Library have so many ebooks really helped me amp up my reading because I own like seven bookshelves full of books. So it was really hard for me to buy more books, which then kind of halted my reading a little bit. Let's see. Gosh, there are so many good ones. I mean, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown is also a really good read. Yeah. These are awesome suggestions. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Do something to take action towards something that you're curious about. Like it can be a really small action, like watching a YouTube video about it or a little bigger baby step, like taking a Skillshare class about it to like a really big step, like taking a actual in-person several week course about it or just doing it, just doing the thing that you want to do. Just I, try it. I love that. Yeah. Just baby steps, follow curiosity. So good. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, I'm on Instagram and I'm pretty active on that. So find me there as Anne Danger. And that's really the place I'm most active. Me too. I love Instagram. So I will put links to all of this in the show notes. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. It was such a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hey. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready. Yeah, bring it on. All right. You're like, I'm ready. I stretched. I'm prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Uh, right now, I am totally obsessed with what I call data porn or chart porn, which is like all these really cool ways that people think of visualizing data. So around like the midterm elections, especially, there's just so many good charts on the internet to look at and thinking about like how people choose what to publish and what colors to use. I think that's like super cool and awesome. So I've been really obsessed with data visualizations, which is basically the most dorky thing that I can say. But That might be my favorite answer with. ever to this question. Like, I don't know what I, I mean, I didn't know what I expected you to say. I didn't have any expectations, but it never in the world would I have dreamed that that's what you would have said. And it's such a good specific answer. Thanks. Data porn. All right. Well, that's yeah. a good jumping off point. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I wanted to be on Broadway. So I wanted to be like on the stage performing. I basically wanted to be like some combination of Shirley Temple and Mary Martin, but as an adult. I like it. I like this. This is like a lot of specificity here. Yeah. <laughs> What's been a tough lesson that you've had to learn the hard way? Oh, to let go. I think that's probably the hardest lesson for me. And 
sometimes I'll think that I've learned it and that I can let go and give up control or that I can change or, or master something and just, you know, needing to relearn letting go is something that I think I might be struggling with still for uh, many months to come. Yeah. I feel like the things that's, I mean, a superhuman answer. I think the lessons, especially the ones that for each of us, our, like the, whatever the biggest things are for us to learn, I feel like they just keep coming back in a different form. Like that happens to me where I'm like, didn't I deal with this already? And then it's like, nope, like here it is again, mm-hmm. just like in a different context. And I, like my optimistic attitude about it is that each time it comes back around, you're a little more resilient and you maybe have a different tool to use than you had last time. But yeah, I think it's mostly just the same things over and over that we have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) What's something that you would love to get better at in the next year? Ooh, that's a great question. I think getting better at being spontaneous. So kind of goes back to the theme of letting go. I love to plan and organize and have a schedule. And I think sometimes that locks me into saying no to things like at the last minute or spontaneously. So I'd love to embrace just doing things more spontaneously, saying yes at the last minute and really like sharpening that skill of being in the moment uh, over the next year or so. Mm, I feel like you're talking directly to me. I also need to do that same thing. So that's good. (laughs) We can work on that together. That sounds good. Yes. Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Mm, I think admitting when they don't know something. Mm -hmm. I think we have this really easy way of being like, yeah, I totally know that person or that topic really well. And I had a coworker recently be like, oh, I didn't know who that was. So I had to Google them and now I'm embarrassed. And I'm like, no, don't be embarrassed. Like admit that you don't know someone or something. And I think that really opens up for discussion and education and exploration. I think especially around some super sensitive and important topics like race, gender, money, religion. Like I think admitting when you don't know is something that people could do a lot more openly. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I also think that there's something awesome about confidently being a beginner in something. And I don't mean like embracing ignorance on purpose, but to be like, yeah, I have no idea who Mm -hmm. that is. Like, tell me about it, right? As like, Mm -hmm. I think so much of how it's, like, I think oftentimes we're afraid to appear like we don't know because it seems kind of this like shameful or embarrassing thing. And I think so much Mm -hmm. of that can be alleviated by just being like, yeah, I have no idea. You know what I mean? Like if you're confident in like saying like, I don't know how to do that. Can you teach me? Or I don't know what you're talking about. Like, let me get educated on that or something. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I love that. I think that's so great. Thanks. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I'm super grateful. And I would love for you to share two things. First, why you decided to support the show and then what you love most about being in our community or your favorite of the bonuses or anything you want to talk about. Yeah, I I actually recently decided to support the show. So I've been a longtime fan and listener and recently just decided like I spend money on all these things like getting coffee at Starbucks or Netflix or Spotify or something 
where I'm like getting joy from spending this money. And I realized, you know, I'm getting so much joy from this podcast and from uh, like the real talk reflections and, and reading your notes that like, I really wanted to invest back in the content that you were creating. And that I thought that that was a better investment than some other places where I was spending resources in my life. I think especially around, you know, some things that are happening in our political climate. I was like, yeah, I need to get off the fence and like support the content that I want to see created and that I've been enjoying. So that's kind of why I decided to invest and I will never regret it. So thank you for doing what you're doing. And some of the favorite things from being part of the community is that, was that the question? Yeah. Or just, yeah. Anything you want to speak to that you're like, oh, this is my favorite part. Yeah. I really like the Real Talk Reflections every month with uh, Julia and Nicole and the notes of grit and grace just really make my Fridays. So that's one of the like emails in the week that I'm really looking forward to getting. It's kind of like when a friend sends you a postcard, but a long form <laughs> postcard that I get via email. Uh, it's really nice to sort of get mail uh, from Nicole and really thought-provoking and uh, very insightful and gives me something to think about. I love that. That means so much to me. And yes, how great is Julia? Yeah, she's awesome. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Doing our monthly sort of reflections check-in. I mean, not that obviously the podcast is super honest, but there's something about those conversations that are just like particularly casual and like raw almost. Mm -hmm. There's, I don't know. I, I love her so much and I really value that she and I have done that this year. Yeah, me too. And I miss I miss her podcast. I, I realize like it's her thing, so she can stop it or start it whenever she wants. Uh, but I feel like I'm kind of tricking the system by <laughs> still getting to hear her every month on your show. That's funny. Yeah, we were just talking because I, I interviewed her live at my live event in Boston last year, or no, earlier this year. And um, I'm doing a retreat outside of Boston in July next year. And so I'm like, okay, obviously you're going to be involved. How are you going to be involved? What do you want to do? What do you want to teach? Like, we're like, I'm like, everything I do, I want you to do with me, Julia. So let's make this happen. So I will pass that on that you are enjoying it. Very cool. So last thing, can you share where you live and maybe a social media link or something so folks can say hi? Yeah, I am based in San Francisco and my social media, I generally am on Instagram and my handle is snide, snide, S-N-I-D-E, S-N-Y-D. I love it. I will hopefully be coming to your area, probably for a live event or something early in the year. So I will let you know about that. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 